Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society, and today I'm joined by PR Week UK editor John Harrington. Hi, John. Hi, Frankie. And not long from the snowy mountains of Davos, we are delighted to be joined by Arlo Brady, CEO of Freud. Arlo, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. Great to be with you. So for more than 17 years, Arlo has been working at Freud's, first as a special advisor to Matthew Freud. And then for the last seven years, he's also been chief executive of Freud Communications and of Freud's group. He's also chairman of the Blue Marine Foundation, one of Europe's leading environmental NGOs, trustee of the Sustainable Food Trust. He's also co-chair of the S30, a group of the world's leading chief sustainability officers convened by the then Prince of Wales and now King Charles. Ollie's background is eclectic, started out at his local comprehensive school in Norfolk, good for you, and after a stint of flipping burgers at McDonald's, he then moved on to university to study his childhood passion, geology. This led him to sustainability consultancy and then to business school, where he specialised in the reputational risks and opportunities associated with sustainability, the subject of his first book, The Sustainability Effect. So that is quite the CV, Arlo, and I have to admit I cut it back. That's the short version. Um, so first of all, before we kick into all the PR stuff, what is it with Norfolk and sustainability? Why are there loads of people that move into sustainability from there? Is there something in the water? Interestingly, there are quite a few PR people from Norfolk as well. Yeah. Um, it's, there's a sustainability contingent and then there's there a really PR is. contingent. If you go down there during the summer months, you will find quite a few PR bosses lurking around. I won't name them, but they know who they are. That sounds like the new networking opportunity of 2024 then. So moving on then to this week's show, we have got a number of topics to discuss with Arlo, including the big global trends at Davos and what they mean for the PR industry, as well as an update on trading and perhaps a little bit of insight on what it's like to have worked with Matthew Freud for nearly two decades. So let's kick off first with trading. Arlo, a lot of agencies have described 2023 as challenging and difficult. What's your view on recent trading and how are you feeling about things in general? Are you feeling optimistic? I am feeling optimistic. Yeah, I think that uh, I think it's going to be a good year, not least because in our case, in April, it is the beginning of our 40th year, which is a cause for some celebration. And you did make me sound old in that introduction. And Freud's I think we all a bit old. Maybe maybe (laughs) I actually am at this point, but yeah, Freud is quite old as well. It's been around for, for, for a long time compared to, you know, a lot of the other players in the space. So, um, yeah, we're going to be having a little bit of a year of, of celebration as well. You know, last year was not too bad a year for us. We, we thought it was, it, was, it was quite a good year. You know, we have quite a diversified group now. So there's lots of different things going on within the Freud's ecosystem, which helped uh, to balance things out. You know, some things did really well, some things didn't do quite so well. But on the whole, it wasn't a bad year. And I'm feeling relatively optimistic about 2024. I think it depends whether you're asking that question about the UK or further afield. I think there's plenty of good prospects for public relations around the world. And there's lots of uh, markets that are doing really well at the moment. The UK is still a little in the doldrums. Consumer confidence is 
relatively low. Inflation is still quite high. I think that, and I, you know, I don't think that's going to change a great deal in the immediate future. But we have an election this year, and it's possible that things get better. It's possible that there's a confidence bump, depending on exactly when that election occurs. It's possible that there's a bit of a bump around that. So, yeah, I, I feel quite confident. The other thing to say, I think, is that having said that, there are geographies that are doing really rather well. There are also sectors that are doing rather well or for other reasons are particularly competitive at the moment. And, you know, the the examples of those would be technology, AI, uh, space is is burgeoning at the moment and in need of comms support to explain what it's all about and what it's going to do. Possibly more on that later. You know, the energy transformation is well underway. You know, that's been documented quite a lot recently, but you know, there's a lot of change taking place in that industry. And wherever there's change, there's need for comms. The automotive world is undergoing a lot of change uh, at the moment. We're going to see quite a lot of competitiveness in that space. So, there, you know, that's just some examples. I think there, there's lots of great opportunities out there at the moment. And is that largely moving your client base, would you say, to more sort of corporate than consumer facing work? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think there there are lots of corporate opportunities because we're living in this incredibly complicated world where you never know what's coming at you next. And I think that corporate leaders, C-suite leaders are needing communications professionals, people that have some sense of understanding of that world to be by their side and helping them to navigate that world. So there's definitely a, a huge opportunity in that in in this moment of complexity and fragility to have um, corporate support, but you know the same is true in the in the consumer space. Looking at back at last year, then and, and looking forward to this year, you know, from a Freud's perspective, what, what was performing really well and where those shifts have been? Yes, so within Freud Communications itself, I think you, you know you're right. I mean, corporate communications did do quite well last year, um, but we increasingly are delivering consumer comms work around the world, and quite a few of other geographies where the economic situation is slightly rosier um, have been great for us. So, I mean, I feel like both sides of the of the suite of activities that we offer are doing quite well, but just in different places. I think it's also worth saying that we, you know, we've grown quite a significant content business over the course of the last few years, and there's an awful lot of interest in that as more and more businesses focus on thinking about how they can tell their story direct to their audience without necessarily going via traditional media or other forms of stakeholder. Yes, of course. And in terms of international growth, are there particular markets that you're performing really well in now then? I think that there's, yeah, I mean, there's lots of opportunity in Asia, in India, in the Middle East and America. The US market is still growing faster than than, than what we're seeing here in, in the UK. So all of those are are huge opportunities. In our case, I would say probably most of our growth has come from from the US and bizarrely, continental Europe. Last year, we saw a reasonable amount of growth from continental Europe. Perhaps finally, we're getting over the Brexit frosting out. Yeah. And what does that mean, therefore, for your local offices versus kind of global network and so forth? How does that work? We don't have lots of barriers between the different people that are within the organisation. Offices don't 
work on their own. They don't have their own bottom line, so as to speak. So, you know, everybody that works for Freud's works all over the world. We don't just have a UK office and the people in the UK work on UK things. They, they will be working on lots of different stuff. So we've got plenty of French people, German people working in our office in London, working on things in other territories. So we've, you know, our approach has, has not been to open offices in lots of places all around the world, not least because we've got quite a strong culture and we feel as though we want to sort of keep keep a hold of that and, and make sure we're investing in it. But you're not finding the clients are expecting that local office and actually doing more consultancy at kind of global strategic level? I think that if you were in the business of selling arms and legs, then probably they would want that. But, you know, we've chosen to go after the more of the consultancy end of the spectrum. So, you know, people are very happy to take that from wherever it might hail. Um, I wanted to move on on to Davos, as Frankie was saying, you recently came back. People who haven't been or don't know, what happens at Davos? What's it all about? Why do comms people go? How long have you got? We could have a whole podcast. <laughs> and abridged. Yeah, we could have a whole podcast on what on what Davos is all about. You know, there's a lot of mythology around it, I suppose, that's built up over the years. You know, it's where the masters of the universe types come together to discuss the state of the world, to, to make deals, to have bilats with their peers all in one place at one moment in time, to share perspectives, to build relationships. Some would say that it's where people come together to plot world domination or how to make pots more money. But other people would probably be more charitable and they would say that you know, Davos is the spiritual home of globalization and all that that unlocks in terms of development and collaboration around the world. And you know, leaders come together once a year to think about how to keep that train on the tracks, which up until relatively recently, you would have just assumed that that was obviously the way things are moving, but it's not quite so obvious now. So, you know, there's lots of different perspectives. I think probably some of that's a little bit unfair. It's in a nutshell, a gathering of mostly really rather special, incredible people that are doing jaw-dropping things. You know, the, the, the official aim, I think, is something along the lines of improving the state of the world. And it's, you know, from my point of view, it's just incredibly inspirational to spend a week amongst a bunch of entrepreneurs, leaders, politicians, campaigners, journalists, all of whom are unbelievably impressive. And it's a sort of annual kick in the pants that, you know, you have to do better because all these people are just so incredible, you end up coming away feeling inadequate. As to why are communications people there? Well, there were rather a lot of communications people there. And it's I think probably they're there because it's not scientific. So I don't know for sure, but it's one of the biggest gatherings, I would say, of media professionals in the world right at the beginning of the year just when media wants you know to understand like you do on this show projections for the year and and everything else it's a fantastic place for companies brands individuals to tell their story to a small but very powerful audience of of opinion formers but not only that you can get it out to the rest of the world because there's this just this huge media presence there so there's a massive spike at the beginning of the year during this week for business stories. Uh, as everybody, you know, the world's media gravitates around World Economic Forum and, and, and starts to think about how we can de- dedicate an awful lot of editorial to this space. So that that's why that you've got comms people there. The flip side of that, of course, is that it's a very risky environment. It's 
one of the only times in the year when media are let loose in a literal sense of the word on CEOs and founders and leaders of businesses, those people that you read about in the media, they're all there wandering around up and down the high street in the in the town. And it is probably one of the only places where if you were a, a, a budding business journalist where you can actually doorstep a CEO and and catch them out and there's always one or two every year. Last year, I think it was the Pfizer CEO who got doorstepped by a guy who wanted to challenge him on the efficacy of his vaccine. And it was a really cringeworthy sort of moment. Have a look on YouTube, you find the clip. This year, there were a few, but probably the most notable one was the CEO of Fujitsu um, who got caught by the Beeb you know, around their involvement in the the Royal Mail story. So, you know, it's a fascinating event, lots of amazing stuff going on, but there's a, there's a very good reason for communicators to be there. Also, of course, don't forget the public affairs professionals. It's a lot of public affairs professionals there because it's one of the few occasions when you can gather together business leaders and regulators and have a bit of an off-the-record conversation about the future of, of regulation and what businesses think about that. So, yeah. That's in a nutshell. But having been there quite a few times, have you ever had that sort of experience of the sort of doorstepping or uh, attempted and that sort of thing? Or have you sort of kept away from, as in sort of your clients or other people you've been? Yes. No one's ever tried to doorstep me. I should watch out for PR week lurking in the snowdrifts in the future. No, I don't think anybody's ever done that to to one of my clients but you know the approach that we of course not all our clients follow our advice tightly but i think that in this world ceos need to appear more open and in touch with what's going on in the world around them and i would like to think that if one of our ceos one of our client ceos did get stopped on the street i think it would probably be quite it's quite a good conversation it's it looks awkward when somebody is definitely not the kind of person that wants to be interviewed and wants to talk to the media. You know, there's, there are some CEOs that spend a lot of time hiding from the media. And uh, if they get caught out, then they sometimes say something because they haven't prepared for it. They haven't sat in a studio and had someone throw various connotations of a question at them. They're just not ready for it. And it's surprising how many leaders turn up to Davos without having put in that homework. Well, it's amazing how many CEOs only do media training once in a lifetime, right? Yeah, we often talk about that because my view of media training is that it's a it's a bit like a sort of athletic muscle. Everybody's done it at some stage in their career. Somebody's forked out for a little bit of media training for somebody. But if you don't keep doing it, every year on a regular basis and updating your stock answers to things and making sure that your appearing is as relevant as possible, you just won't be ready for when that moment occurs. And quite often, you just won't be able to predict when that moment occurs. Yeah, well, there's lots of CEOs who don't like doing media training or talking in the media, isn't it? But that's a warning sign from Davos to be well prepared. So moving forward to some of the key trends that I've seen your recent um, LinkedIn piece on Davos, and obviously there's Mm. so many issues to discuss, but it sounds like AI was the leading subject of most of the events that you went to. 
And it was really interesting when you talked about in your piece around AI overclaim and your feelings around that, as well as job losses and so forth. Could you take us through a little bit on that and your thoughts around why you think there may be an overclaim happening right now? Well, in any given year, there's always one topic that everybody likes the sound of and that is the dominant phrase that if you were word clouding everything that everybody's saying, this pops out. Probably last time it was crypto. You know, everybody was talking about crypto. Now, very few people are talking about crypto. It completely goes off of the agenda and it gets replaced with something else. In this case, AI, the more you learn about it, the more you realize how phenomenally impactful it's going to be on everything that we do our home lives, the way that we work, communications, trusts, all of these different aspects. It's it's definitely going to be hugely impactful. But what I learn is that it's only as impactful as the data that you put into it. Because, you know, all of these large language models that exist, they are using incredibly powerful technology to draw conclusions, but they can only work with what they've got. So if the if the data input isn't there, then the output that you get won't won't equally won't be there. And so I think it'll take a a little longer than perhaps people think before we get to the point that AI is solving all of our woes. And, you know, the, the, the thing for business leaders certainly to think about is probably how can they capture more data so that they can use AI in a better way to make better decisions. But the overclaim point is because the, there's that gap with the with the, da- the, the data isn't quite there yet. So people at yeah. you know, every session I went to uh, Davos had some element of AI in the conversation. And uh, I think that AI is just not going to solve all of our problems in the short, short term. That just is manifestly untrue. It'll take a little while before it gets to the point where it's it's capable of analysing data in the right way. So there's obviously lots of other big trends around misinformation expected around AI with the elections this year, mm. job losses. I mean, I think, you know, Gates and Branson have said that we might all be working a three-day week and we need a universal basic income and all of those sorts of issues that are coming through. Mm. But thinking specifically about Freud's then, how do you see AI actually impacting your business and what you do for your clients? I think that it, I probably see it impacting us in a, a variety of different ways. The first way is inefficiency. I would imagine that it will make some of the basic tasks that we do quicker to deliver. So, what do you think? Press releases, ring rounds? Yeah. What's, what's yeah, going AI? <laughs> yeah, any yeah. of those basic things, really. You don't have to talk about PR particularly in of its own right. You can think about mm. any any aspect of your life, you know, some of the more basic things that one might do in life will be automated in the future. In that article that you're referencing there, I also talk a little bit about robotics, which I think is a under-talked about trend, particularly in manufacturing. You know, there's this the rise of the humanoid robot, which sounds like science fiction. It, it, it's actually on the verge of being a serious thing. And I don't think we're going to see humanoid robots in PR agencies for a little while to come. But, you know, some of the more basic tasks, I think, will be automated. So so there's that aspect. Then I think probably the most significant aspect is what AI will do to people's perception of the information that we're putting out there into the public space. So, you know, comms agencies are working with their clients to pump out information and maybe that information won't be trusted quite as much as it has been historically. If you look over the last 10 years, probably the world of PR spent a lot of time diversifying its definition of opinion former. You know, when I started all those years ago, as you pointed out at the beginning, it was 
the traditional media universe that were the principal target for a, a PR agency. And uh, we didn't move away from that. They're still the people that we've got the main relationships with, but we've diversified that significantly. Are they going to be trusted voices into the future or in a world where people are on the hunt for misinformation and disinformation? Is it that they're going to go back to trusted sources of information, trusted media outlets, or even wanting to hear the information direct from the horse's mouth uh, themselves from business leaders on platforms like X or whatever, where they're actually directly talking without middleman interference? So I, I think that area is fascinating. Who knows? It's definitely going to have very significant impacts on the industry. Well, and also, I suppose, that based on the assumption that we trust the media, editorial media that we have now, I mean, do we? I mean, there's actually quite a lot of media sources that I think have questionable misinformation in them as well. So yes. you know, there's a handful well, there are... that I think we could actually say are really trusted. Yes, and there are a handful of media outlets that spend a lot of time, effort and money on fact checking and, and all of this, and, and they're less and less. And I, I wonder whether this is an opportunity for them to highlight their wares. Yeah, 100%. So you also talked about the UK PLC and the, and the rise of sort of the new economic forces of India, China's mm. not so new, but big, and also the presence of Saudi Arabia at Davos. Kind of where does that where does that leave us in your views about where we are from a UK PLC perspective? I think the UK is probably been treading water since Brexit, really. I mean, it feels like we haven't really found our place in the post-Brexit world. And I think that uh, we are all sitting here drumming our fingers, waiting for an election and waiting for some certainty of direction as to, as to where this country is going. Nobody's really effectively painted a vision for the country. And some of these other countries like Saudi Arabia, India, China, they have a much clearer view of where they're going as a, as a nation. So I think, are we loud enough in the, in that, in the public space no, but we don't actually have a story. You know, if, if the UK were a client coming to us, you would be saying, hang on a minute, you don't need to turn up the volume. You need to work out who you are, where you're going. You know, why do you exist? What is it you're trying to achieve and how are you going to achieve it? And when you've got all of those things together, then you can go out there and engage. And the UK hasn't really done that for some time. Having said that, there isn't a negative view of the UK. I think there's a pretty positive view of the UK out there at the moment. And it's economic I'm utterly prospects. stunned to hear that. <laughs> I mean, weren't we the embarrassment abroad for so long, really? It wasn't negative and all the kind of corruption that's going on in our government and the ridiculousness of many of our politicians. Those stories don't always make it you know, into the big wide world. We're very fixated in the UK on our some of the uh, topics that are of significant public interest, but they're not necessarily the things that the rest of the world is talking about. You know, there are lots of fantastic things about the UK that we should be shouting about. One example, which was in the FT on the weekend, is gaming. You know, the UK is World HQ for gaming, and we're not really talking about that on the stage. We're not picking that up. You know, we're our science, technology emanating from the, that golden triangle between Oxford and Cambridge and London, it's world beating. Look at the role that those scientists played in during the pandemic. There's lots of amazing things in the UK that people in other countries around the world know about us, but we don't often talk about that in our local media. So ironically, I think they're more positive about us than we are. Reassuring to hear. So, Arlo, one of the other 
big issues is where we are with ESG and obviously also the sustainable development goals that we're all hoping to achieve by 2030. Wokewashing has just been an absolute nightmare and obviously, you know, a big issue that you've talked about as well that's obviously impacting the investment in sustainability green hushing all of those issues I mean how are you feeling about this issue and you know I know that you said at the end of your LinkedIn piece the climate crisis was there but it felt like it was one of the last things on the agenda yeah well that's true but of course a lot of those same people not a month before were in Dubai for two weeks maybe not the whole two weeks talking seriously about this topic and making significant progress. Yeah, I was interested. You saw you thought the COP28 was a success. Well, it was a relative success considering. Yeah, I think it was a relative success. So going back, so ESG I think is a uh, is an awful term. I've never liked it and I've never liked bucketing all of those things together in in one space and it shouldn't surprise us that those terminology gems are not liked by a, a big chunk of people around the world. So I think we should as far as possible try and avoid using awful acronyms and focus on what it is we're trying to do together, you know, giving people opportunity, building new businesses, whatever it might happen to be, try and use a language that resonate with people, which is why I, I say one of my big takeouts from Davos is that you know, we've got this huge complicated world out there. And when we're dealing with those really complicated issues, we really need to find a way of telling our stories better with less jargon and less complexity. So I think business leaders need to learn some tactics from populist leaders. No, I'm not saying. Interesting. So more slogans. Yeah, maybe. Um, maybe. Trying to explain better what it is you're trying to achieve in a way that addresses the hopes and fears of ordinary people. And of course, you've got to understand the hopes and fears of ordinary people and not be isolated in an ivory tower. In order to be able to do that, sometimes business leaders look and sound like they've been locked up in an ivory tower somewhere and are imposing their will on the world. And I don't think they are. I think they just need to find a better way of communicating. And in order to do that, I, I obviously I'm biased, but I think that they need to work more closely with communications agencies, bring them into the C-suite and help because we are companies window on the world. You know, when you work for a big corporation, very often you're always looking inwards. You're very rarely looking outwards too much. And you know, I often think of our role as an agency is, is going into companies and helping them to find the key to open the window, throw it open and have a look outside, see what's going on and think about how what's being discussed in that room relates to what's going outside. And quite often people get that wrong. And I think that's at the heart of the ESG woke washing debate where people just haven't aren't using, they're talking entirely different languages. And it's confusing people. And then on the SDGs, you did mention the SDGs. I mean, yeah, they are not going. Seventeen of them. (laughs) Seventeen of them. (laughs) Seventeen of them. All seventeen, I think, are probably not going very well. It's pretty unlikely that we're going to to meet those. But you know, there is lots of corporate appetite to push on um, activity in those different areas. Not least because employees are really keen on working for organizations that are focused on some of these topics that make the world a better place. 
But looking specifically back at weight washing as well and what you might be advising your clients, I was sat next to a head of communications at a very well-known global brand at the PR Week Awards. And she was telling me what a nightmare and how worried they are about communicating anything around their sustainability credentials, and most especially within the US. Mm. And actually have backed off massively on what they do, because actually even just doing anything good seems to be bad. So where are you in terms of your you know, consultancy with clients around that? Do you think it's actually about different framing or is it about holding back until culture, the culture wars move on or drive us into a place we don't want to go? Um, I think it's true to say that quite a few companies are holding back. I don't think it's true to say that quite a few companies are stopping action. I think a lot of companies are marching forwards on these agendas with some pace and doing some really exciting work, but they're not necessarily talking about it as much as they have done historically. That's because it's more difficult to talk about this kind of stuff in this environment. It's definitely difficult to talk about it. That doesn't just because something's difficult doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. A lot of companies don't spend a lot of time looking out of the window and don't understand that environment into which they're introducing this terminology, this activity. And if they spent a little more time understanding that world, they would probably find a form of words that would help them to better engage. I don't believe that that it's a completely hostile environment to all of these different um, SDG-related topics. It, it, just, it just isn't. You just have to find the right way of engaging people and find the, the right time and the right delivery mechanism, and, and people do respond well. So Goals House is obviously a, a really uh, big event for Freud. So I think runs a, a number of events. I think you were at COP, you at Davos, mm-hmm. and so forth. Can you tell us a bit about Goals House? What happens in Goals House, and, and what were the kind of some of the key themes that were coming away? I yes. mean, were they reflective of the themes that you've obviously just talked about? be great to hear a bit of the inside track. We helped to launch the SDGs back in 2015, I think it was. And ever since then, we've been really keen as an agency to try and make as much impact as possible on delivering the goals. So there's goals that were created by the UN to try and uh, make the world a better place by 2030. And we wanted to make a contribution towards helping accelerate progress on the goals. And we spent quite a lot of time thinking about what we could do. And, and you know, we deliberately go after work that is focused on those goals. Not always, not our whole portfolio isn't orientated towards the goals, but we spend quite a lot of time looking at how we can work on those kinds of topics. But because of the day job that we have, we've been going to World Economic Forum and United Nations, Unger Week, New York Climate Week in, in New York, Um, and all these different big events. And the observation that we've had is that you quite often see um, all the bankers in in one area talking to each other and all the NGO people over there and all the media people over here, and they're very rarely sort of interacting with one another. And, And we look around and because of the role that we play, we know a lot of those different communities. And we thought, well, why don't we bring them together, curate conversations between that diverse community of internationally renowned activists and leaders and thinkers and doers. And if we brought them together in one place, maybe they might partner together. The last goal, 17, is is partnership. The goals can't be achieved without partnership. So we thought, well, that's probably where we can help. Goal 17, we can bring people together. And we can create the right environment for people to do cool stuff together. So we created this thing called Goals House. It pops up in 
various different ways, you know, more than 10 times a year in different geographies. And it's quite a lot, of, isn't it? 10 times a, lot, a year. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a big thing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it's a, it's quite a big community now um, of, of, of Are there any that, um, examples of things that have happened in Gold's House that you can name? Oh, yes, that deal was struck here. That moment, that relationship was made here. We produce a impact report every year, which talks about all the different things that we think come out of Gold's House. So you're more than welcome to have a look at that. But it's extremely difficult to we don't. I think once you claim ownership over something, nobody wants to. Come. If you come to Gold's house and make a deal, Arlo's gonna. You know, that's mine. Slightly uh, less we, discreet. We, we, yeah, we don't treat it like that. We want people to come together and feel comfortable that that they're in a safe place and they they can talk about something and they can go off and take credit for it if that's what what they're looking for. But I do recommend having a look at the impact report because we do make an effort to try and capture the positive impact that we have through that, through Gold's House. And do you think just finally on the SDGs, at what point is there some sort of reckoning around, are we still going for the SDGs for 2030? Well, we're halfway through timeline now. Um, So I would say, you know, this year is probably a quite a big reckoning moment. It's not like the Paris Agreement and COP where now we've got this thing called the annual stock take where it's pretty clear where we're at in terms of global performance. So I don't think um, something like that exists for all 17 goals. But I would imagine as we get closer to the point of delivery, there'll be more and more pressure. But I think we've probably made quite a lot of progress on development and less progress on the environment. That would be what I would imagine we'll see. And the tension between those two things is fairly obvious. You know, The more we develop human capacity, the more challenge there is on our environment and our natural resources. We shall see what this year brings. So, and then finally, probably the most interesting question of the whole podcast. Obviously, you've worked with Matthew for nearly two decades now, and it's really hard to make, you know, when you see those magic relationships work for a long period of time, there's usually a secret source somewhere in that relationship that's kind of made it work. Mm. Tell us about your, what's made it work with you and Matthew over the last 17 years. And it's very interesting also to think about Matthew's foresight in terms of hiring you and growing the corporate side of the business, you know, all those, Great foresight. those years Great. ago. Great foresight. As when Freud's was probably more of a much more kind of consumer brand business, right? Obviously, you know, tell personal stories, but sort of, is it a sort of yin and yang of different skills coming together? Yeah, probably. That's a that's a probably a pretty good description. I, yeah, I don't want to embarrass him, and he does get embarrassed, Matthew. Uh, surprisingly, you wouldn't necessarily expect that if you know him. But um, no, I really didn't expect that. But no, he, he does get embarrassed. Um, you know, I've had a lot of fun with Matthew over the years. And you're right. I mean, I think it's a it is about seventeen years, and uh, he's a real character. He's an enormous character. There's no doubt in my mind that he's one of the great, most creative people I've ever come across. Um, and I've met a lot of, of creative people over the years. You know, he has a sort of view on everything. Um, donkey's years later now, I never really leave his office without some kind of a gem, some different perspective on something, a different way of looking at, at something. And it's, and it's often a different perspective or an idea that I don't think anyone else would or could have come up with. And a sort of unique, informed creativity. 
with backed by a strong set of values, I would say. I mean, ultimately, you're right. We are very different people. If you asked somebody that knew both of us well, they would say, yeah, we are completely different characters. That difference is probably one of the reasons why differences attract, as they say. But um, I think it's the, the, the value set, probably, uh, the compass that we both have that seems to be aligned in the same direction. But yeah, he's an amazing guy. There's no question he's an amazing, innovative, creative person. And how does it work in terms of the sort of running of the day-to-day business? Are you are you working together on the running of the day-to-day business or is, does Matthew play a kind of different role? I mean, obviously, I know he was off <laughs> producing a film and winning an Oscar of late where he said he didn't really see his family, let alone probably employees of Freud. So how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, he, he is around. He's not not present. He's definitely around yeah. most days. This simple answer to that question is that I think we have we have a sort of natural balance as to what I focus on and what he focuses on. And and we don't it's never been written down. It's not like our chief operating officer, Rebecca Hurst, I'm sure would love us to have a proper job description so that we could Oh, she's not the lady stuck in the middle, is she? <laughs> no, she's not stuck in the middle. No, she's not stuck in the middle. Actually, she's been there a lot longer than I have, so she knows Matthew even better than I do. No, we have a sort of natural way of doing things together. I know what he likes and he know, knows what I like, and uh, we tend to lean into those things that we're passionate about, and every now and then those things come together and we work together on some things quite well. I don't, you know, I don't always so agree sometimes of relationships you can't specifically define it can you but no when it's been going for quite a long time it's difficult to define it but you know there's no question we don't always agree about everything but he provokes me to look at the world in a slightly different way perhaps he might say the same I don't know but it's an enjoyable relationship well thank you so much that brings us to the end of this show thank you so much for joining us um, and we hope to our listeners that you enjoyed the show and we look forward to you joining us next time